I do think it's been really eye-opening and really challenging. I think we've been able to create a safe space for people to talk about things that we don't often like to talk about. And so I've been really, really excited to preach on the topic of shame, which is interesting, because it's kind of heavy, and that's not my usual way of preaching. I usually don't tackle hard subjects, ones that maybe are a little bit more of a downer, but I can tell you I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. So I've been reading a lot, I've been researching a lot, and um, I, I think that today is going to be a, a good day. But part of me did feel a little, you know, why am I even preaching about shame when the person Brene Brown exists? I don't know if you know Brene Brown, but she has um, written a lot of amazing books that are bestsellers, and she seems to be all over the place. And her specialty is talking about shame and vulnerability. And she has a TED Talk. I don't know if you watch TED Talks or you know about them, but there's a lot of them, like a lot of them. And she is the fourth most watched TED Talk. 35 million people have watched her talk about shame. It's incredible. So if you don't know who she is, you should, and you should probably feel like an idiot that you don't know. That's my first example of shame. Doesn't that feel great? (laughs) So I know I don't want to make light of this topic because I know it is heavy. But I hope that we can create space where we can maybe laugh a little bit. But as I've been uh, reading about shame and praying about shame, and I've realized that shame is absolutely an epidemic. And we don't even realize it. We don't know because it seems to manifest in a different way. We don't know how to pinpoint it. It comes out looking like something else, but really the root is that we're dealing with shame. Kurt Thompson, who wrote this book, The Soul of Shame, that I've been reading and obviously putting a lot of notes in, says that you don't need to have a mental breakdown to feel shame. You simply need a pulse. You simply need a pulse to have shame. And Dr. Brené Brown says shame is the swampland of the soul. Which I thought, yeah, it is because it just stays there and it's yucky. What a great depiction of what shame is. So today I want to look at two stories in the Bible about shame. One is going to be very familiar to you. One, not so much. Maybe you've kind of heard this story, but you've never really heard a sermon really dive into it. Because I think there's two ways that shame comes to us. And so we have to look at both and understand how we can battle both ways of shame. So the first one is going to be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 20 through 22. And why don't we stand for this one? I won't make you stand for the longer one. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. The word of God for the people of God. You You may be seated. So interesting story. Just a couple of verses kind of thrown into this chapter of Matthew. But when I look at this story, 
I realized something about this woman. She probably has a lot of shame. And she has shame because someone has thrust upon this shame upon her. As I've read, I realized the thing about shame, it doesn't usually just show up on its own. It just doesn't come out of nowhere. It's most likely because of some sort of interaction, some conversation, some relationship with another person. And that has left the sting of shame. And so this woman is carrying shame because of what people have said about her. And so this narrative has been built. This story has built inside her head of who she is. And so who you are often most likely is shaped a lot about situations, conversations, or what someone has said about you. And it's interesting thinking about communication and how shame can be used that often we feel shame just with the change of a tone. We know it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Or how much communication is non-verbal. So what does this really have to do with this story? So I want you to use your imagination for a little bit. We don't know the age of this woman. In some translations, it just says she's been bleeding for 12 years or different things, but we can make an assumption of what this means. So we don't know the age of this woman, but let's say that she was 12 when this all started. Now we know at this time, being a 12-year-old girl, you're about to enter and to really adulthood, you're about to be married, but we all know that 12 at the end of the day is still a child. You're still figuring out who you are. And so she's 12 and um, other, other girls her age are, are starting to be like women. And we know that um, Jewish law, you know, if you, during your time, you were kind of separated. And so she's like the other girls, but what's different is that her situation isn't going away. And so she starts to think, huh, I think something might be wrong with me. Something is different. And unlike her friends, the people, other girls in her community, she doesn't ever get to enter back into community, really. She's isolated. She's alone. So the message that she hears is that you're broken you're gross, you're unclean, there's something wrong with you, go away, don't come near me. And that's what she's told for 12 years over and over and over again. So really shame has been put upon her. You should have shame about who you are, even though she can't help it. But this community, these people have told her who she is. And I know most of us probably have at least some sort of positive voice in our head. Maybe it doesn't always win out, but there's usually something in your head that can tell you, no, no, that's not who you are. No, you're great or you're loved or whatever. But because this community has said this for 12 years over and over again, that positive voice that can tell her who she is has been wiped away. And so how she feels about herself is completely because of someone else. So this shame has been thrust upon her. I thought about that. How our narrative, how we think about ourselves, 
can be really damaging because we believe what people say. Especially if they say it over and over again, it must be true, right? Dr. Kurt Thompson says this in his book. When I perceive that I am receiving the shame from a community of voices, the pain can become unbearable. When the collection of the voices of an entire community shames us, it is much more and wildly due to the inability to locate it centrally in one place. And so when I feel shame in my family or in my church, addressing it feels quite overwhelming. And you know what it's like when you feel like you're getting the message over and over again. You don't know exactly where it is. I love that he says it's hard to pinpoint centrally where it's coming from. But this quote, and thinking about this girl and this story, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And my heart started to break for a lot of different people groups. I started thinking about our LGBTQ community, our brothers and sisters who have been led to believe that they're less than, that they're gross, that they're abomination, all these horrible words. Shame is overwhelming for them. To our black community, for the picture that society has painted who they are, what they represent, to a point where they have shame and they don't really realize it, but they do. To those with learning differences and how we've told them that they're not going to amount to much. And so they start to believe that and so they don't apply for things. They don't do things because they have this shame because they've been told, well, you can't do that. Or those with disabilities, how maybe they've been told they're more of a burden. They're more of a burden than a blessing. Shame. And maybe even, as I thought about my own story, sometimes being a female, I feel like I have shame. Because I feel like I'm not quite good enough. I'm not quite the best. And I know these are just a few stories. There's probably many more. And I know many people in this room probably carry some shame about something. But I can't get it out of my head that maybe we've been part of someone's shame. That this woman's story is a lot of people we know. And I know I've taken you a little low and you may be feeling a little down. I'm going to take you just a little lower for just a moment if you're not feeling bad enough. Do you know when we start to actually start to understand shame or start to kind of feel it? 15 to 18 months old. Think about that. 15 to 18 months old, we can start to feel and understand shame. Ugh, that made me want to bawl my eyes out. It's interesting that children can start to understand when there may be a disappointment or they did something wrong and they internalize it and then that becomes part of their story. Again, think about, it's not really what we say, it's how we say it or the nonverbal stuff we say. So I think about maybe the times when my daughter asked me, play with me? And I might go, <sighs> Or maybe someday when she comes and she worked really hard, but she got a B plus, and I kind of give her that look of disappointment. 
or when I roll my eyes at something she does and she sees it. That, is, that brings upon shame upon her. And shame shapes us. Deep wounds come from shame and they can live with us for a lifetime. I bet right now we could all think of something that was said to us maybe when we were just a toddler and it has stuck with us. We all know what it's like to believe something about us because someone else told us that it was true. So this is why shame is often the underlining problem of addictions, eating disorders, anger, violence. Shame has such a big hold on us and we don't know it. And this is why it's important work. This is why it's important to talk about because shame is ruining lives and relationships and and robbing us of the beauty and the goodness that God has for us. So I started to think, what message are we as a church sending out to people? Are we making up people's minds of how they feel about themselves because we've dictated who they are and what they are? Or who, what kind of message are we sending to those we love? Or what message are we sending to people that we necessarily don't love but we just know? What kind of message are we saying to them? How are we contributing to shame? My second story that I want to look at is a more familiar one found in the book of Genesis. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good and um, it, for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you have gave to to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Adam, blaming. But here's a story about Adam and Eve. They made a mistake. And so what do they do? They make sure they do whatever it takes to make sure no one, that no one finds out what they did. Lucky for them, there was no one else there to find out, right? Except God, who surely God already knew. That was not a surprise. I love how quickly they sew those fig leaves to cover themselves. I mean, literally, they do something to try to cover themselves so they're not found out. They're hiding. 
They're trying to shove down that shame that they did something wrong. I mean, isn't that what we do? We make a mistake and then we go, we're like, okay, I need to distract. I need to lie. I need to run. I need to hide. I need to do whatever it takes so I am not found out. And as we go on, we start to collect secrets. And all we have to do is just keep up with that story. We have to make sure that nothing comes in, that we think everything through. And we keep adding to it. And so we keep adding these secrets and we're keeping that up. But what we're doing is allowing that mistake to turn into shame. And then it ends up disconnecting us from everyone and everything. Because it interrupts connection. But we have convinced ourselves from the very beginning, from the very beginning that the only solution is to hide, to shove it down, and never speak of it again. See, shame is so awful. Shame is so awful because it makes us believe the worst things about ourselves. The worst things. And we can define everything about ourselves from one moment. We make up our minds about who we are from one mistake often. And often enough, the worst thing we believe about ourselves is not even true. It's not even true. See, shame is different from guilt because guilt says I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Shame is nasty, isn't it? So if you've been listening to Scott and I, my husband, for a while, you know that our favorite show is Parks and Recreation. It's the most positive, uplifting show. You cannot not watch it and end up feeling like the best about the world and about yourselves and about all your friends. Like everything is so uplifting. And we've watched it probably 25 times through. But recently, I wanted to maybe look at a new show. So we started watching this show that's on Netflix. It has two seasons out right now. And it's called Queer Eye. Okay, stay with me. And I never watched when it was out like a few years ago, but they relaunched it. And what it is, it's these five gay guys. And they go give kind of a makeover to someone and maybe help with um, getting their house in order or different things. Sometimes um, they they help men, they help women. One episode they helped a fire station raise some money. They helped redo the fire station, like, main room. They helped a community center. They do all these things. And what's interesting is these people they help are, are nominated by someone else. And when they get to meet the person for the first time, often they don't look very put together. And their house is usually disorganized or something, or they're messy. But as they start to talk to them, as I was watching this and thinking about shame, I was like, a lot of these people, what, again, what the root is that they have shame about something, about themselves. Some of them quoting, you know, well, I'm so ugly, or I'm such a loser because of this, or I, I don't really amount to much, I don't do enough. There's all these messages that they believe about themselves. And it's heartbreaking But these five guys, through five days, spend time talking with them and speaking all this love into their lives. And so honestly, when I watch it, I feel like the Holy Spirit is working through these five guys 
to speak this new truth, this new love into these people's lives. Because I'll say, I know you think you're this, but I don't see that you're this. You're not, you're not that, you're this. You are wonderful, you are awesome, you have so much to offer, you have so much to give. And within five days, you start to see this transformation of these people because they start to believe it. And they have this confidence. And they feel like they matter and they have something to offer. And I bawl my eyes out every single episode because I see, gosh, this is what the world needs more of. But the only reason that these people that they help are able to start to feel confident and maybe have some healing is that they're talking about it. They're bringing stuff to the light. And I think that's what we have to do. Because there is no cure for shame that you're carrying. There's no cure for it except to be vulnerable and to talk about things out loud. And that is the scariest part. Because you have to go back to hard conversations. You have to revisit hard situations. Maybe you have to call someone up. Or maybe you finally need to make that appointment to see a counselor that you've been putting off for years and years. And that is hard. But we have to deconstruct and dismantle because shame has us tangled up. Because shame weaves itself in and out of our story and we don't know it. So yes, it's a risk to be vulnerable, to face our shame, but it's the only way to healing. Thinking about that first story in Matthew, really what that woman does is she's vulnerable. She goes out into the crowd where she probably does not belong, where she's probably around people that have said horrible things to her, and she reaches out to touch Christ. And he sees her, and she sees him. And she's known. And then she's healed. She's vulnerable. See, we were designed to be vulnerable because we serve a vulnerable God. Think about it. God is vulnerable because from the beginning, God created us and made himself open to wounding to rejection, to pain, to the point where he died. From the story of Genesis, God wanted to be known. He wanted to be known fully, and he wanted to know us fully. We are meant to be known. We are meant to be known full and deeply, and we cannot be known unless we're able to be vulnerable. Because I believe when we are, we can fully love ourselves and we can be fully loved by others. Dr. Kurt Thompson, again in this book, says, To be fully loved and to fully love requires that we are fully known. Absolute joy comes not just in my having some random joyful engagement with something or someone. Rather, absolute joy must eventually include my being completely known, especially those parts that in subtle, hidden ways have carried shame often without my conscious awareness. This is the language of the new heaven and new earth. That sounds amazing and incredible to me. I would love a new heaven and new earth where we are known 
and where shame no longer tangles us up. I love this church for many, many reasons. But one thing that I think makes our church so amazing is the way it started with Tom Ship and his work with alcoholics and our friends that are in recovery. Because no one does vulnerability better than those in recovery. I don't know if you've ever been out with someone who is going through recovery or maybe you've invited them over. I know this has happened to me multiple times where especially when they're in my house and I say, hey, do you want a drink? And they go, oh, no, I'm an alcoholic. And that first, like that first time it happens, you're like, well, this is uncomfortable. This is awkward. What do I say next? But in that moment, when you think about it, that is the most beautiful thing. Because they, because they are completely vulnerable. What they, what they have decided is, is that, yeah, I should have shame about that. And I'm probably still working through that. But I'm just going to say, this is, who, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with. They don't let shame have the power. They combat it by saying exactly what is going on. And it gives me permission to feel safe to maybe share something that I've dealt with or that I'm struggling with. So I pray and I hope that we could become a church. We could become people that are vulnerable that we can combat this thing that wants to tangle us down and bring us down, which is shame. And so I would challenge you today, as you leave this place, that maybe tomorrow or maybe today, you pick up the phone, you talk to someone that maybe um, you need to admit something, that maybe you call someone or um, you make a face-to-face meeting and you talk about something face-to-face. Maybe it's that person that maybe brought shame upon you and you want to work through it and practice forgiveness and freeing. Or maybe it is picking up the phone and making an appointment. God does not want us to live with shame. God does not want us to believe these horrible things about ourselves because God wants us to know that we are loved and that we are beautiful and we have so much to offer. So would you do me a favor and take a risk this week? And be vulnerable and kick shame to the curb because it has no place here. Amen.